I'm Alex Mosad, and welcome to Winner Take All, where we talk about the constant battle to fight back and win against big tech. I'm really pleased to be joined by Mike Mathis today, the co-founder of the 1st and 14th Institute. Mike, uh, great to have you with us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Enjoy the looking forward to the conversation. Why don't we just start off? What is the 1st and 14th Institute? And, you know, I presume it'd probably be good, just a good refresher. (laughs) What do the 1st and 14th Amendments actually speak to? Right. So the First Amendment is regarding free speech and free press, among some other freedoms. The 14th Amendment is related to due process and fair and speedy due process. So uh, we think both of those are related to how big media, uh, you know, needs to handle users with regard to speech moderation and censorship concerns. We started first and 14th this year in February because uh, I'm, I live out in Silicon Valley and Northern California is probably the most liberal leaning part of the country. Uh, I think most people would probably accept that. It's most of my friends and colleagues, as you can imagine, are, are liberal. And my local representative is Anna Eshoo in the House of Representatives. And Anna Eshoo and another representative nearby named Jerry McNerney wrote a letter. You may remember this happened to Comcast, Cox. Uh, AT&T, you know, DirecTV, Amazon, and basically asked these TV channels to explain, uh, you know, why are they carrying uh, conservative news content, for example, Fox News or, or others. And, you know, when I spoke to my friends in Northern California, most of them, as you can imagine, they really don't like Sean Hannity. They really hate Fox News or Newsmax. They can't stand this. But they almost universally felt that that was inappropriate, that was wrong. And so we decided to form our institute and take some actions, including uh, we did a, a professional voter survey just in our liberal leaning area to determine how people felt about uh, these kinds of censorship issues. So what happened with that, Mike? So what we found is uh, in an area that's 45 to 25 Democrat versus Republican, and where we we created a, a, a survey response that was demographically uh, accurate. It was uh, more than 60% of the uh, registered voters felt that Anna Eshoo's letter was wrong. More interesting was that uh, 67% felt it was wrong for the government to try to discern you know, the difference between truth and falsehoods. And similar strong majority felt it was inappropriate for the government to punish or in any financial way incentivize media to publish or not publish preferred or unpreferred content, you know, based on government's uh, partisan politics. And then, and then what she, she kind of took the gas off and, and, uh, and stopped putting pressure on as, as, you know, after seeing that, you know, did you have any impact once you surfaced these results? It's hard to know what, you know, I'm sure she saw the results. It was locally published in the, you know, regional newspapers in the area. We, we had it on some websites. Um, and uh, strangely, though, there was very little response to her letter and her hearings in general. Uh, so I suspect the political leaders in Congress kind of put the kibosh on that whole direction because they probably saw 
similar survey results that said that was a, a pretty unpopular direction to go in. You know, government shouldn't be so, uh, uh, you know, openly advocating for censorship. Yeah, yeah. She she was too blatant about it. That was the problem, right? You know, we're like a frog in the, you know, on the stove. You got to slowly heat the thing up. You can't go so, you can't be so brash and then people are going to be, oh, obviously that's inappropriate. You know, you got to slowly turn up the heat. So, she was I guess she needed a little bit more tact in her uh, censorship approach. Yeah, you know, the people in the area who follow politics and, as you say, partisanship, they were surprised because she's quite well known. She's as a backbencher. She's been a quiet and not very active backbencher for the party since the 1990s, at least or, or more. And uh, so people were a little shocked that she actually was the one who authored such a controversial letter. It dovetails with with something that we've talked a lot about on the show, which is that big tech, you know, big media. They, you know, I feel like they're trying to make Americans and the public feel that they're in the minority. I don't know how where, where you net out on this, probably especially with that survey. I feel like the majority of Americans see what's going on, are not okay with what's going on, are smart and can understand uh, that that big tech is 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 overstepping their boundaries time and time again. It seems like this, your survey would echo that. How do you feel about it? There have been some surveys, national surveys, where even 59% of Democrats said uh, big tech has too much power. And we have a situation now with uh, unelected small number of executives who have their own business agenda making decisions that are affecting our ability as a country to have public conversation. You know, uh, the online media has absolutely become the 21st century town square or the 21st century village green, you know, that the country founders might have thought of. And uh, as these companies have become monopolies, you know, if Google decides they don't want a, a website result to show up in their searches, that website absolutely disappears off the face of the earth. You know, they've got 90% of search. They have a similar percentage of video, you know, user-generated video with YouTube. Facebook has you know, 90% when you integrate Instagram, WhatsApp, and Facebook together or social media. So it's like they're available to, for censorship and propaganda. Uh, and we have Amazon with 80% of retail book sales. So what has happened is, you know, these companies have rather opaque standards of how they moderate and determine which speech should be allowed. And when they make take actions, against some users and not others, it creates the appearance that they're not being fair to all users. And I think what we've seen is a, a lot of people are unhappy. In fact, I'll tell you, Alex, I believe even the executives of these companies are unhappy. You know, Zuckerberg and um, Jack Dorsey and uh, uh, Pichai, uh, Sundar Pichai from Google, you know, they went to these hearings in March in the House, uh, in the Congress, and you had one side of the aisle literally yelling at these guys saying, you need to censor more information. And the other side was yelling, you guys have got to stop censoring us, you know, conservative opinion or point of view, so to speak. 
So these guys really can't win. And, uh, and actually Facebook, uh, Mark Zuckerberg has come out and published articles saying, please give us direction and, and regulation to help us stop being the arbiters, you know, of what should be acceptable on the internet. And what has happened is, uh, these, these platforms have literally come out and said, hey, we're going to cover our ass and we will tell users the reason we blocked content or censored a user is based on quote unquote authoritative sources. This is comes up again and again in COVID you know, information, medical information about COVID and they rely on the WHO and the CDC and now, as time goes by, we constantly see the WHO and the CDC changing their minds about information. Uh, and, you know, they're, they're not uh, completely nonpartisan or they don't have their own political agendas. And CDC and WHO is government. So we now have a situation where government is setting standards for speech that these monopoly platforms are applying. So what we end up with is government setting speech standards, which is exactly what the First Amendment was designed to prevent. This has been going on, you know, long time before COVID. There have been religious communities. There have been, uh, for example, the entire crypto community has, has, had, has been censored uh, for years by big tech. This is just the you know, the kind of latest iteration, it gets worse and worse, right? The censorship um, and either you're, you're kicked off permanently, you're suspended temporarily, you're shadow banned, your posts are muted in terms of discovery, right? There's a whole spectrum of censorship now these days, but COVID certainly has, I mean, they already opened up Pandora's box. Uh, you can't close Pandora's box. You know, they've crossed that delicate line of being from platform to publisher. They're no longer a neutral platform business as I would define it. And you can't go back, which is really sad. And it really goes against the entire proposition of what these business models are supposed to do, which is supposed to connect and facilitate the exchange of information and, and ideas. You know, now you can't walk it back. And, and, and I think they are only going to get worse and more aggressive in their censorship. Overall, I'm optimistic about how this all ends out, but they specifically, the big tech monopolies, I think are only going to be more abrasive and more controlling. What do you think the future holds? I think without some change in policy, uh, you're correct. And I, I think the incentives are there for these companies when they make their decisions, it's a lower risk to censor something rather than to allow it if, it, if it's controversial content at all. Um, you know, there is a government, uh, a, a law or policy that is referred to as Section 230. It has, it's part of the uh, Communications Decency Act from the 1990s. And it, it was designed to facilitate the growth of the internet as information companies where, you know, email companies, websites with comment section, but all sorts of internet companies um, have user-generated content and the law, the section 230 gives them immunity so that they can't be sued for harmful content that they're not responsible for, but they simply 
you know, enable as, a, as an online platform. And what has happened, as you just mentioned, is um, these companies have recognized that Section 230 actually gives them almost complete immunity if they want to censor stuff, because what's written in there is a term called otherwise objectionable content, which nobody knows what that means. It's not defined. And so uh, they can't be sued because they claim whatever they censored is uh, objectionable content. And, you know, that's a subjective standard. So if we tweak Section 230, um, that will have a major impact, I think, on how these companies make decisions. The other thing is uh, the government today threatens to break up these companies. As you know, there's uh, both sides of the aisle have their own reasons to want to break up these monopolies and uh, these companies want to resist that. I believe uh, it will get worse, the censorship will get worse if these companies detect that um, doing the censorship bidding of the current political party in power, which is the Democrats, you know, will help their business avoid being broken up. Uh, but, you know, everything changes every four to eight years in this country, as you know. And I was involved about 12 years ago in Silicon Valley in the privacy policy issues, because, you know, it was not that long ago, websites and all these companies really did not publish privacy policies and make those available to users. And they just wanted everybody to, uh, you know, have an opt out, you know, and there was a lot of um, publicity around the idea that the government should start regulating these guys and force an opt in model, which as you know, is very bad for advertising business models because nobody opts in. And uh, they were quite motivated these companies were quite motivated to avoid heavy-handed government regulation. Uh, and so that's why they very rapidly adopted privacy policies and published them and followed them. You know, so this is an example of industry self-regulation motivated not because they wanted to be necessarily uh, more sensitive to private information, but by business issues. You know, they did not want the government to regulate them. So I, I suspect that... Um, you know, things are not today going to change, I don't believe, in the current administration and the current makeup of Congress. But one of the things that we're doing as an institute is we are actually talking to some people in the government and, and in Congress, as well as in some of these companies, to just try to understand what these companies are thinking, but also particularly understanding how folks in Congress are thinking and some of the staff and some of the, the committees. You're saying you don't think that anything is going to change with the current state of Congress. So, so, you know, we've covered on the show the, you know, handful of bills that have come out of the House Judiciary Committee. Are you essentially implying that your confidence in those bills to eventually make their way through the winding road that is, you know, the legislature is pretty low for anything to actually ultimately get passed and, and affected into law? I believe it's very low um, because, uh, as you alluded to earlier, strangely, um, the left side of the aisle seems right now to be mostly for censorship. And they, they believe it's helpful for their cause. And um, some of the people I've talked to said that there are um, 
thoughtful people in Democratic Party who recognize that censorship is bad for the country, but right now they have a very vocal, uh, powerful, you know, part of their party which is demanding this, and it's hard for them to say, "Hey, we're going to cooperate with a few Republicans to try to solve this problem." That's just uh, a difficult situation to imagine right now. Things will have to change after the next uh, elections, I think, before. There will be real movement on these issues. And then Lena Khan, right? There's a, you know, uh, a lot to do about her appointment uh, at the head of the FTC. We've been supportive of that appointment, but skeptical of her ability to affect change because it seems like her position is that the FTC is somewhat powerless and that she needs new laws to be passed to give her the power to do what she wants to do, which is ultimately regulate big tech. I would disagree with that stance. I do think that the FTC has plenty of power and precedent um, with existing laws in place, but it seems like she does not, or she certainly uh, is not as bullish on, on, on being able to successfully use those laws. So those are basically the, the, the two irons in the fire right now from a, you know, from a government response to this would probably be a handful of bills coming out of the House Judiciary Committee and Lena Khan at the FTC. Uh, the DOJ just seems to be spinning in endless circles. Uh, so sounds like you're also not as bullish on on Lena or 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 uh, what's your opinion there? I don't know Lena in detail. I know she's, uh, as, as you said, she's motivated to regulate uh, big companies and seems to be not happy with large companies ex existing. Uh, I believe, uh, and our institute believes, the government should not be involved with regulating speech standards. You know, I, I articulated some problems with these companies regulating it on our behalf, but I think it would be even worse for the FTC or the FCC or some other new agency to be invented to try to start regulating speech standards because that will obviously inevitably lead to political partisanship and uh, not something that you know makes sense. So our, our sense is we need to find uh, a way for industry to have a market-driven or a, you know industry-regulated uh, model for how they uh, regulate free speech and censorship standards. What do you think about Florida's governor, Ron DeSantis? I don't know if it was a bill or kind of ex executive order protecting creators, um, you know, that are, I guess, residents of Florida being silenced or censored by big tech. Well, I thought it was a, an excellent, it was a law, by the way, it was passed by the legislature and he signed it. And Part of it was to protect Florida politicians who want to get their message out because he recognized that these platforms, if they decided, and I think they did for one woman running for Congress in Florida, uh, who I, whose name escapes me, but they could literally take a politician off the air, so to speak, a candidate off the air, I mean, in an election. The challenge is that for a state, you know, this stuff uh, is... Uh, there was one court that came out already and said that um, that violated some kind of a federal uh, commerce standard. You know, that this this category of law is 
a federal commerce type of an issue as opposed to a state issue. But I, I applaud the effort. And I actually think it would be helpful for uh, other states if they have the political ability to pass something like that, because all of this is leading up to something. This is leading up to a, a, a head. Something is going to um, be the straw that bakes the camel's back, you know, and if the states start making clear uh, that, you know, the, the people are not happy with censorship, I think that will help. What's interesting, you look at uh, Poland, um, they've enacted, uh, I think, legislation. They're like justice minister. They can fine tech monopolies up to $2 million for each occurrence where they take off a creator inappropriately. Australia, we saw the Australian government strong arm Google uh, and Facebook to pay the media publishers in Australia more fairly, right? Because Google and Facebook were cramming down what they wanted to pay for news in Australia. And basically, Australia said, we're going to ban unless they capitulated. And ultimately, guess what? They did. Uh, and they came to the table. I wonder if you did one of your polls in, say, the state of Florida to say, hey, should the state of Florida have the ability to go to the go to the mat with Facebook and Google and say, hey, unless you treat creators fairly and stop this censorship mumbo jumbo for, you know, Floridian residents, if you keep having these transgressions, we'll ban you from operating in the state of Florida. We'll ban Facebook or Google from the state of Florida. Do you think, how do you think that would play? I think it would be difficult because these companies are, you know, truly monopolies. And as you're well aware with tech background, there are certain industries that just want to naturally be monopolies. You know, eBay wants to be a monopoly because if you're selling something, you want to sell on the network with the biggest platform of buyers. And if you're a buyer, you go where there's the biggest platform of sellers. So, you know, Google and Facebook, Twitter, I mean, these are natural monopolies. So Florida, if it's like, okay, the citizens of Florida can no longer use Google. I mean, that will just cause absolute chaos. I mean, you know, so that won't fly. Uh, that That is not going to be something that Google's very worried about, I, I don't think. There's just not an alternative that's viable. We've also been covering... A number of alternative, I call them the third wave, like like your third wave coffee shops, third wave social media content platform sites that that are doing phenomenally well, you know, with shoestring budgets, literally on single digit millions of dollars of funding because they've been neutered by either the SEC um, or the media or fill in the blank to try to halt their ability to fundraise, you know, from traditional VC investors. But these sites are top thousand websites in the United States, have tens of millions of active users. If they didn't have a, a black eye on them because um, society is trying to cast them aside, even though they're wildly popular, these would be nine figure, some, some of them probably unicorn valuation tech companies uh, get with the traffic and volume that they have. So we have seen private enterprise. Actually, I would say, you know, there are a number of really great alternatives. We've covered DuckDuckGo, a Google search alternative raised $100 million a few months ago. 
You've got social media alternatives. You've got YouTube alternatives. It's it's not as mainstream as a Google or a Facebook, but I am also optimistically, uh, you know, rooting for these third wave social media and content platform startups that are continue to see an exodus from big tech to to their sites. Don't know how familiar you are with those, but um, it really is very promising to see. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because uh, however many years ago when Rupert Murdoch decided to take a risk on, you know, let's go after a new little niche market, a tiny niche market in America, which is half of the country. And uh, that's that's the market for Fox News, right? And there was nothing targeting that half of the country before they just uh, decided to launch their news channel. So uh, yeah, I would be uh, happy for these companies to be successful. I think, um, you know, companies that go up against free, it's it's very difficult. And uh, th- there has to be a reason for users to switch away from the current monopolies and to these new channels. And maybe if people really are unhappy with uh, privacy and censorship issues, maybe that would cause uh, a movement. But um yeah, I mean, I, 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 I'm, I'm mildly familiar with DuckDuckGo and some of these companies, but not intimately. But I, I, I would be excited if they were viable because if Facebook, Twitter, Google, you know, Amazon, if they were not monopolies, the problem that I'm worried about would not be such a difficult problem where you just have, you know, a monopoly platform controlling the public square of, of information. This is really a an apolitical situation, right? This is about free speech and uh, open conversation goes to the fundamental principles of, of America, of the constitution, of the bill of rights. And that's why you're seeing, you are seeing this, this exodus um, to these alternative sites it's very difficult for them to go and raise money from your VC community um, and others for a variety of reasons. But a post here recently from Gab where in, in the months, in, in just the past few months, they've had over 30 million new subscribers uh, on top of whatever their existing user base was, um, which is not an immaterial amount of people, but still... Gab cannot have an app on the app stores because Apple and Google won't allow it, right? So they have all this usage, but you have to go on the the browser, right? You you know, you can't use an app, which makes it so much easier and just a much better viewing and and in interactive experience. Parler, the other kind of uh, social media company which has now capitulated, their app was pulled off the app stores and then and then AWS kicked them off of you know, they kicked off all their servers. So they had to rebuild their tech stack. So it's every step of the way, whether it's actually posting content, free, you know, whatever, posting your free opinion on the sites versus building a competitor. <laughs> um, every step of the way, these tech monopolies are battling you tooth and nail. I think the, the problem is uh, the standards that these companies are trying to use is, they call it misinformation. You know, they constantly talk about inf- misinformation or truth and falsehoods. 
And fundamentally, that is just incorrect. Uh, the standard is not whether something's true or false. The Constitution and the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court has repeatedly confirmed that falsehoods are protected free speech. So this, the standard has to be whether that speech is truly harmful or imminently dangerous. And that is the, that is the thing that, you know, we're working on. And we, we wrestle with this standard because sometimes you find gray areas where, you know, something might be possibly kind of dangerous or maybe, you know, it's just, you know, for example, whether certain, uh, you know, false COVID treatments should be promoted, you know, uh, that sounds dangerous. <laughs> um, but medical studies talking about COVID or political opinions or fiery political speech are protected, you know, and this is fundamentally uh, the problem. And, and Clarence Thomas on our Supreme Court has said he is looking for a case, you know, to adjudicate on this thing. And to the extent these, uh, the idea that Parler, you know, that Parler had looser standards than Twitter is demonstrably false. You can find tons of false and harmful and, you know, uh, uh, dangerous types of tweets on Twitter, but Twitter didn't get booted off of AWS. So it means these companies are following standards that are for business interests. It's politically expedient. And what can we do about this in the interim, right? If we're saying, hey, from uh, our, our legislature, um, our regulators, not going to hold uh, hold our breath on their ability to affect change. Uh, private enterprise, you know, yeah, actually making some progress. And that's what I really loved about what 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 f f you and, and the 1st and 14th Institute are doing here. What can we do in the interim of all of this? So I think one thing is to raise awareness. Um, uh, you know, way back uh, at the beginning of this discussion, you know, we talked about nonpartisanship and we've been reaching out to liberals who have been canceled because they're not liberal enough. Um, so some writers on Substack, for example, which is an interesting business model in itself. Um, and, and talking to uh, these companies and talking to members of uh, Congress or their staff about some models. Uh, and um, one of the models that uh, we like, we've been studying this and, and kind of testing the waters is, you know, the finance industry is regulated, not directly by the government, but the finance industry in 2007 created their own regulatory authority called FINRA which was formed by NASDAQ and the New York Stock Exchange when they merged their enforcement and arbitration groups. And we are uh, peddling the idea that FINRA could be a model for non-government regulation of online media that will help these companies avoid much worse heavy-handed government regulation because we do not believe in government regulation. And I think one of the challenges for people who do not prefer large government involvement in industry is you know, how do we deal with censorship? Because we don't necessarily want the government directly involved in anything that, you know, where the, it's a business and they, sh they should not be involved in businesses. Uh, and so, so this is a kind of a quasi government agency model. 
And FINRA is a model of one that has the scale to work. You know, the budget, they have $800 million budget, thousands of arbitration judges. They, they have teeth. They can suspend uh, financial advisors. They can suspend stockbrokers. They, they've meted out tens of millions of dollars of fines to financial companies. And so that is a model that can work. And Facebook has already demonstrated its interest in something like that by funding their own oversight board with a $130 million budget over five years. So they, they're willing to spend serious money on it. Of course, the oversight board is absolutely not an independent board. <laughs> they're personally selected through some process by Facebook. Uh, and it's it's a kind of an interesting mix. Most, you know, two thirds international luminaries who have, some of them have come out and said, you know, human rights might be more important than free speech rights. So they're not very sensitive to at least the U.S. Constitution. It's very curious. I mean, if anything, it just goes to show you that these tech monopolies are, you know, effectively their own governments. They're emulating having their own Supreme Court function with this Facebook oversight board, which is, uh, you know, kind of hilarious. When it came down to the, the probably probably the key decision to say, hey, should should President Trump continue to be banned from social media? They punted it. You know, so that kind of, <laughs> kind of, uh, that was the that was the nail in the coffin, at least in 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 my regard for uh, how effective that that body is. Absolutely, yeah. Well, they did do one good thing. They pointed out to Facebook, you know, your standards are not transparent. Uh, you, the, Facebook has a lot of standards written about you know their speech uh, boundaries of what they you know think should be censored, but they have nothing written about the enforcement actions. And, you know, if you break this rule, what will happen? And if you talk to people who have had content blocked or banned from any of these platforms, generally what you get is an algorithm just says, hey, you violated a community standard and you have no idea what you did wrong or how to fix it. And there's nowhere to go. And here's the only solution I've seen right now is you somehow have to get publicity. Uh, you have to find people who have big audiences and get them to uh, generate awareness that you were unfairly censored, not because you did something dangerous, but because you did something that was disfavored, you know, by mm -hmm. these platforms for some reason. So if you can get on Tucker or you can get Barry Weiss to write about you or someone like that, you know, then you, you know, then you tend to have a way to get unblocked. Um, otherwise you're silenced and, uh, and no one will know. So it's, uh, you know, it's a, it's a tough fight. I'm glad that, that you're fighting it. Mike, it's been great having you on today. We, we hope to kind of keep abreast of your progress and, uh, and wish you all the best in, in, uh, in this common battle here. Very good. Well, thanks a lot, Alex, for the time and enjoyed the conversation and, uh, I enjoy your, your video cast as well. Likewise. Thanks, Mike. That's it for us today on Winner Take All. Thank you very much for joining us and listening to Mike Mathis. I will talk to you soon.